What's up, fight fans? Luke Thomas here. This is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. As usual, three parts to the podcast where we go over the weekend's action. We take a look at what's coming up ahead and in the middle, use some multimedia to really dig deeper into maybe one or so of the contest, which will be exactly what we do today. Uh, over the weekend, there were a few things that happened. Just going to focus on one and then one kind of smaller issue. But it was UFC Fight Night, let's see, 110. This took place at the Spark Arena. In Auckland, New Zealand, had an attendance of 8649 for a reported gate of a little over $800,000. That seems low based on my calculations, but I guess it might be correct. Uh, okay, also known as UFC Fight Night uh, Lewis Hunt, UFC Fight Night, uh, what you call it. By the way, if you didn't see, um, I do a post-fight show on my personal YouTube channel after every event, every major event, or every semi-major event. If you want to see that, you can check that out right here. I'll post a link to it. It's a lot longer and have a lot more in-depth thought, but some of it not even technique at all. This one would sort of keep a little bit more about technique. Yeah? Okay. Um, all right, first, Mark Hunt defeating Derek Lewis at 351 of the fourth round. This fight was good for a couple of rounds and got a little bit slower as time went on. Derek Lewis trying to... Deceptively athletic Derek Lewis, right? He had that video where he was trying to hit the gainer with the flip. And uh, into the pool, and then of course he was up here trying to do jumping switch knees for a heavyweight. It, that appears to have exacerbated um, some kind of lower back injury. I won't get into it for this podcast, but if you check out my post-fight show, I detail I've had a number of issues with lower back uh, injuries, and I can tell you that they will they will ruin your life. So I, I, my my wondering is everyone was saying, well, he retired, um, or he seemed to have retired, right? Is that permanent? Is he just in the mood? You know, I may, I, hard to tell, right? He's getting married. Maybe he just doesn't want to do this anymore. He's been pretty clear for, up front that this was not something that he intended to do, even by fighter standards, for a very long time. But let's see how he feels when he's medically healed and then if he maintains that decision-making. I suspect he's not quite done. But um, you never know. I don't know the guy personally, so I guess we'll have to see. But uh, in any case, the fight itself, it was classic Mark Hunt, right? Not, not a whole lot new about this. Really great at driving guys back, throwing hooks over the gloves. You had Derek Lewis constantly receding territory, going back up against the fence constantly, and then ducking under punches and trying to roll out of the way. Um, not a very effective strategy, but if you're injured, what can you really realistically do? So I would say we didn't learn a whole lot new about Mark Hunt from this contest, but what I would say is that the... Statements of his decline are somewhat overstated. Um, he looked to be still fast, great takedown defense, obviously heavy-handed, patient in his offense. Like, this is still a guy who can compete with the very best. And, um, you know, to be able to do it in his hometown must have been great. To have his kid up there must have been great. There's some issues there, obviously, still with the UFC, which, again, do I get in more in my post-fight show? But, um, but just from a technical standpoint, it looked to me like a perfectly adequate, if not good performance from Mark Hunt. Now, I didn't think Derek Lewis looked bad until maybe those last couple of rounds where he was really evasive and backing up and not really in the in the in the pocket and he was sort of throwing these one shot hitter, one hitter quitters while Hunt was a little bit better. Even for a guy who typically likes to throw the one hitter quitters, he's a little bit better about like putting things in combination, setting things up, going a lot to the body in this contest. So really great stuff from Mark Hunt and I think he's still very competitive as a um, you know a top ten, maybe even top five heavyweight. Uh, Derek Brunson defeating Dan Kelly at 116 of the first round. Not much to this one. I thought it was a right hand, but I believe it was a left. But either way, you know, we went back and saw, I, I talked about this previously as well. You go back and you watch the, 
the Robert Whitaker fight. And Robert Whitaker is much better than Dan Kelly and Anderson Silva, but that was a super reckless performance. You know, maybe Robert Whitaker would have won anyway, but he probably would have had to work at it a little bit more than he did. You know, when you chase a guy constantly and then you're chasing him along the fence line, this is a disaster waiting to happen, which is exactly what you saw. Um, and then in Anderson Silva, he was a little bit too measured. And this time he was Derek Brunson, I thought. Uh, again, Dan Kelly is not Anderson Silva. Dan Kelly is not is not Robert Whitaker, not by a long shot. But uh, a very important win for Derek Brunson, the kind where he looked really good, um, showing off that trademark power. Uh, a, a stat from the guys from Fight Metric, he has Derek Brunson more first-round finishes than any other middleweight ever and has no performance bonuses to show for it. He kind of has these big wins sometimes, and people just sleep on them. I'm not exactly sure what that is or it's just bad luck because of the cards he's been on that have had tremendous action when he showed up. I don't know, but something to keep in mind. Derek Brunson, I think, is still a very talented middleweight. I think he can beat a lot of guys. Uh, He just needed to go through some learning adjustments about what it's like to beat or compete against upper echelon guys, either because of their skill or their name or both. Uh, Dan Hooker defeating Ross Pearson at 302 of the second round. We'll take a look at that in the second segment. But to me, this was a fantastic performance. From Dan Hooker and Ross Pearson, I thought looked good early in both rounds, and especially in the first because he mixed up his defense a lot more. You're going to see in this one in the second round, his defense becomes very, very predictable, and his defense became part of his offense. And so, as a consequence, he was mixing the two together in way too easy of a way to pattern. And uh, as a consequence, due to space, timing, and everything else, Hooker just had him dead to rights. We'll go over that in the second segment. Uh, Ion, or I've had it pronounced to me is Ion, Eon, and Iwan Kutalaba uh, defeating Henrique Da Silva at 22 seconds into the first round. Not a lot of analysis. Just fires punches over the top of a guy's guard in a super aggressive manner. One rocks him. And then I don't know the proper name for the choke other than what I've been told it's been called in my whole life, the rape choke. I apologize for saying a horrible term, but that's the only term I know it by, where you hold someone down with this hand and you bang them out with the other. Uh, and that's what he did. I think I counted nine or ten shots. And the problem was he doesn't address the grip De Silva does. Now, it's hard to do that when you get in your face banged, but you can see him trying to use a guard or his legs to do something. Man, you got to get one hand here, and you got to get this off, and you got to begin to move or something. Because if you're just standing there trying to use your legs while this guy is just hammering away, it's almost like going for a heel hook while someone has just free reign on your face. Um, you better get that heel hook quick, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. And so you saw that. And look, Kutalaba had an amazing fight with Jared Cannonier. Cannonier beating him fair and square. That's why I think a lot of people thought Cannonier was going to do well against Glover Teixeira. In the end, it didn't go that way. But Kutalaba, uh, he's he is a, he's a physical specimen. Uh, you know, he's a little bit of a wild man, but talented and scary and athletic and I don't know maybe he can rein some of this in and really become something special I guess we'll have to see but Jesus what a marauder he is huh Ben Wynn defeating Tim Elliott at 49 seconds of the first round shocking this one I went back and watched a few times Tim Elliott does the old Matt Hughes BJ Penn bit where someone has your back and you're too busy with your hands on their foot trying to remove the hook so then they just lock up the choke uh, it's not much more complicated to it than that. Yes, Ben Wynn is a good scrambler, but I thought Tim Elliott over time would be a better one. Yes, Ben Wynn um, um, did a real good job of maintaining 
you know, back control and knowing when to let go of a choke and when to make sure you had an underhook and when to make sure you posted on the ground and when to make sure you followed the guy with the turn. These are things that, you know, require a lot of time and expertise. And he clearly showed some skills. But to me, he had the back and Elliot is bent over and trying to pull the legs off. So Ben was like, thanks. Just like that. And then once he did it, you can see him. I talked about this in the post-fight show too. You can see him squeeze his squeeze into one side, that final pull. Uh, you know, really getting that lat in the back engaged, uh, and that closed the show. So, you know, Tim Elliott is a guy who has been famed for risk-taking and being a crowd-pleasing kind of fighter. You know, these can be some of the problems where you take some shortcuts and scrambles sometimes. You might get good at it because you can beat your training partners or it's worked in fights, but, you know, eventually you're going to run into somebody who, you know, maybe Tim Elliott is the better scrambler, but it doesn't matter if you're competing in a way that you're just taking on too much risk. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky defeating Mizuta Hirota, 30-27 across the board. The only decision on the main card, by the way. And a really great performance from the featherweight here. Uh, tactical, um, creative on defense, creative on all. Well, I should say uh, vigilant on defense, creative on offense. There are some issues about to what extent he would let guys get inside of range and begin to physically control him or pressure him against the fence. So there are some defensive wrestling issues and spacing issues he probably needs to work out. And that also leads into, you know, to what extent can you more effectively get your feet behind you and fire off a jab and get off at an angle. So there's some of those issues too, but good footwork, um, patient offense, but frequent enough to not be stalling. Um, good about changing directions, both with striking and takedowns. Good about mixing high-low. Good about mixing strikes into takedowns. There's a lot to like here from Volkanovski. I don't know how far he can go, but, boy, he seems like a well-schooled, disciplined student of the game. And this was a strong performance uh, as a consequence. Vince Pichel defeating Damian Brown, 337 of the first round via KO. Damian Brown was winning this contest. Um, but got a little too greedy with the forward charge. And Vince Pichel, man, boy, you got to say something here. And I talked more about this on, uh, also again on my post-fight show. Uh, I am amazed. I am amazed at how fast stance switching has grown as an effective tactic in modern mixed martial arts striking. And by that I mean the following. It is not merely that you see a lot more of it. You see a lot more of it at different levels. Guys who are champions do it. Guys who are contenders do it. Guys who are even unranked are doing it. And they're all doing it successfully. Some are doing it constantly on the outside, right? We're, all, we're circling, you're watching me switch. And then I'm sort of confusing you that way. Then you get guys, if you go watch last week's Monday Morning Analyst, you get guys like Max Holloway who stand to post. But then as you change direction, as we close in space, then I switch on you and I catch you at an angle you're not expecting. You see some of that. Um, you know, you're seeing just all different varieties of it in a variety of contexts. You see stance switching, of course, in the other combat sports, but I really fundamentally believe you're seeing it a lot more in MMA now. It's a copycat league. Everyone says, oh, the NFL is a copycat league. So is MMA. People see best practices and they want to do it. No one was doing front kicks to the face in MMA anyway. They were, of course, in other striking arts, but no one was doing that in MMA really a whole lot until Anderson Silva sat Vitor Belfort down with it. We just began to copy everything that we see, and I'm really glad to see this because I fundamentally believe this is MMA striking gathering its own identity. You know, it's always been looked at as like Muay Thai, but lesser than in terms of his striking prowess or boxing, but lesser than, you know, or Western kickboxing, but lesser than or Dutch kickboxing, but lesser than, you know, a cheap facsimile of it. And for some reasons, that's a fair criticism. It can't be as, you know, fully complex, same as jiu-jitsu, same as wrestling. But 
it needed to take on its own identity. And I really believe stance switching and the commonality of it and the way guys are doing it through combinations or on the outside or at the end of combinations or in championship fights or, God damn it, on the prelim card. I am, I am blown away at how fast that has become a very effective tactic. Something to keep in mind as MMA striking gets its own identity over time. Luke Jumeau defeating Dominic Steele. Good win for him, 29-28. Uh, John Moraga defeating Ashkan Mokhtarian. 30-25 is the only correct scorecard, but then there was two 30-27. So shout-outs to whoever scored that at 30-25. Uh, just a vastly superior grappler. We talk about it all the time. What are the stages of grappling? Survival, defense, attack. This was all survival. A little bit of defense. John Moraga leagues leagues ahead of him on the ground and didn't even necessarily have to use a bunch of ground and pound to get to positions. He could do it through positional weight and trickery and um, you know where to put his hands, how to underhook, where to sit his hips at the right time, get this guy's weight going one way, scoop around the other, other way, side, take mount, like just vastly vastly superior to Mokhtarian on the ground. Good tune-up contest for John Moraga, who entered this contest on the three-fight losing streak. By the way, spent the last two weeks at the UFC Performance Institute. Leslie Smith is at the, at the Performance Institute uh, this week. So really, really interesting to see more and more people use that. They're, according to what Moraga told me, you, know, you have to get your own accommodations for home for housing. You have to bring in your own sparring partners, but they have cryotherapy there. They feed you. They have uh, massage therapists, other physical therapists there. And he said he wanted to end his camp feeling good, you know, not banged up to the point where he was sort of limping across the finish line, either metaphorically or literally. Uh, and this time he said it made a big difference. Not great finishing on some of those arm bars or that guillotine, that arm and guillotine. When you do that, you got to be real high on the base of the neck. You got to get that thing cranking all the way over. You could see the rat tail of Mokhtarian, meaning it was, you know, Jeff Glover has uh, arm and guillotine around the crown of the head, but you want to be high on the neck typically for those kinds of arm and guillotines. So a little bit low on it. I mean, I'm sure it was tight, but tight is not the same as finishing. And then in that arm bar, you know, and it's not. Spinning all the way over. you got to get that leg over the face. That is what keeps your face down and uh, your body down. If you ever want to try something, I, I always talk about it. Take one finger and put it on your friend's head as they lay on their back and tell them to sit up. They won't be able to do it. You can, you can hold them down with your one finger. All right, so imagine what your leg over the top, scrunched hard, can do. It keeps you there, but you got to spin quickly into it. And you have to have sort of a whole process. And look to me like he spins and then kind of falls back a little bit. So the leg is kind of off and his weight is backwards. Um, you know, there's there's some things there that he could probably slow down and, and tune up a little bit. But overall, great, great performance from John Moraga, who was, you know, Ashkan Mokhtarian never had a chance. Uh, Zach Otto defeating Keiichi Kunimoto. Bit of a controversial decision there. Split decision 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. And then J.J. Aldridge take it on Chan Mi Jun. Uh, 3027s across the board. Went back and watched that one as well. Not a great job necessarily by Aldrich in cage cutting, kind of doing a little bit of following. But man, that right hand was money the entire time. Check hooking in the middle of combinations. Um, they were, remember they were open opposite stances. So Aldrich doing a great job of going to the body with the opposite side, um, uh, but the back, you know rear leg roundhouse. Uh, just great, great stuff from JJ Aldridge. You know, obviously some things she can tighten up, but she's young. She's getting better. So for me, it was like she got better with time. Um, June appears to be tough as nails and a little bit crazy. So I guess we'll see how it goes. This was a catch rate of 118 pounds. You know, not quite, um, not quite um, uh, on weight as they should have been. But uh, I would say another 
strong performance from a student who is quickly developing her game in J.J. Aldrich. So bonuses went to Mark Hunt versus Derek Lewis, pardon me, and then Dan Hooker and Ben Wynn. Uh, pretty all deserving, but again, Derek Brunson just can't can't get a can't get a bonus if it turns out. Um, okay, so that's it for the UFC. Let's talk about that glory incident real quick. All right, so uh, Myrtle Grunhart was facing off against Herat Gregorian at Glory Forty Two in Paris. Somewhere for some reason, this is still in the middle of the round, if not the early part of the round. Gregorian just turns his back after being, I think he'd been hurt earlier in the round, just turns his back and walks off. And you see Myrtle Grunhart come over, crack him with a hook, and he drops. And that's it. Then this brawl ensues, and someone like charges. Grunhart punches him in the face, may have broken his jaw. And there was a debate about, you know, what are the ethics of the situation? Uh, to me, I don't know. This Look, I recognize there's a very clear diversity of opinion, and, and um, you know, Smart observers have gone both directions here. For my money, the answer is I would not have been upset if he, in this case being uh, Grunhardt, uh, had extended a degree of sympathy to Gregorian and been like, what are you doing here? And let the referee handle it. But we're talking about world-class competition between world-class fighters and world-class situations where he is seeing an opponent walk away. He doesn't know what that is. He just His brain just says to him, uh, this is your chance. And so he just took it without really thinking about exactly what it all meant or what the consequences would be. I really don't have much of an issue with it. I certainly feel bad for Gregorian. I feel bad for Grunhardt that he got attacked, but I don't really know that you can say that Grunhardt is deserving of any kind of um, opprobrium here. That, that seemed to me well within well within his rights to do exactly that. You have to defend yourself at all times. And yes, it looked like he was kind of out of it. I mean, that's a weird thing to do. But asking... That's not Grunhardt's decision to make. If he wants to, he can. He is not required to. He is required to finish that guy off, which is exactly what he did. That's what they're in there to do. So certainly if he had you know, refrained and been like, referee, you do, you handle this, I would not be upset with him. I would not say there was some dereliction of duty. But this is one of those weird moments where someone makes a bizarre choice for whatever medical reason that Gregorian had, and Grunhardt took advantage of it, which is, I mean, there, what, what rule did he break? He didn't break any rule. He did exactly what he was allowed to do. Um, and, you know, I know people want to talk about the ethics of what happens if he shows you his back. Then you crush him. This is not everyone's built to be a fighter, y'all. I've talked about it a lot on my live chat. Not everyone can answer the call to violence. Certainly, Mertzel Grunhardt can. You want to fight in world-class competition against guys where they are scratching and clawing for every inch on that ladder for the biggest paychecks they can get. This is how they feed themselves. This is how they put money in the bank. You turn your back, I, I, I mean, it's not that I don't feel sympathy exactly for the condition that he was in, but I don't feel in any way that Grunhardt shouldn't uh, deserve a whole lot of criticism or certainly any kind of punishment. Maybe things would have been better if they'd gone a little bit differently, but I'm not really mad at how Grunhardt handled this, and those guys who attacked him should go to jail. Uh, okay, with that out of the way, let's do this. Let's take a look at how Dan Hooker got past Ross Pearson in probably the best performance of his career. Really fun stuff, and then we'll take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. Dan Hooker taking on Ross Pearson. How did this one go down? Well, obviously we saw how the knee ended it, but you always want to see what sets everything up to make that happen. Typically, if you can, not every time it, there is a big setup. Uh, sometimes things just happen, you know, not randomly exactly, but without a whole lot of antecedent factors. But that's not the case here. Uh, there are a lot of antecedent factors. And what you're going to notice in this fight is that the dynamic basically works like this. 
Ross Pearson is the one who comes forward basically the whole fight. Now, he doesn't do a whole lot of charging, although sometimes, but he's the one who moves forward. Dan Hooker has times where he's cage-cutting, but mostly he's backing up here. But what he's able to do quite effectively, even while backing up, is keep distance. He was really good about using his jab, although that's what a lot of uh, Ross's counters came from. But nevertheless, he was using uh, uh, both inside and outside leg kicks. He was using front leg and rear leg teeps, and he was mixing them all well. It would look like he would be throwing, you know, uh, uh, he would feint a rear leg teep and then throw you know, a rear roundhouse, or um, he'll see him jab, jab, jab. You'll see uh, Pearson trying to parry, and when he does, he immediately throws this high kick up here to counteract him. So he was really disguising it well, mixing it up well, but obviously he had a big reach advantage, both with his feet and with his hands, right, legs and arms. He wanted to keep it at distance, and at first had a little bit of trouble with that at the beginning of both rounds. At the beginning of both rounds, Pearson had a little bit more ease getting in on him than he did later on. But you're, what you're ultimately going to see is that uh, more or less, more or less, Hooker did a really good job of maintaining distance and used that to frustrate the distance closing of Pearson such that Pearson ultimately became predictable. And when he did, you saw what happened. Let's go through the slides. All right, let's do this now. All right, here you see him up front, right, early on. This is still in the first round. Let's see what's going to happen here. Fires a jab. This is interesting to me because it looks like he's slipping to the outside. Yes, he does, and he counteracts it by coming down, scooping with that uppercut, and then a left hand. This is noteworthy because he almost never does this the rest of the fight. So early on, slips to the outside, uses this rear hand to come with an uppercut, and then this is ultimately the hand that's going to get him. Bink, that left. Pops him. But that the one commonality is the springing down and then leaping with the left. That is the common theme here. All right? So keep that in mind. All right. And then they sort of back off and turn. All right, 246. Here we are. They're facing off. Let's see what happens. All right? Rear leg teep there from Hooker. Tries to drag it back out. Pearson follows. They kind of face off a little bit. He dips down underneath, and he looks like he'll either go right to the body or right to the body left hook or just left hook. Let's see. Yep, right to the body. Bink. Left hook upstairs. You can see still early in the fight, he was having some success with this. It was an effective way to get on the inside of the jab. Remember, he slipped on the outside first. This time, he's slipping on the inside of the jab lowering his level, going right, changing levels, and then changing sides. It's a decent job there by Ross Pearson early. All right, here we are a little bit later in the fight. Let's see what happens. They're staring off. He's going to slip to the outside of the jab. This is, this is interesting because that's what kept him safe. And then throws a left to the body, and it comes back out. He eats a kick right behind it, and then Pearson tries to throw a right hand behind it, right? Moderately catching him, all right? But understand, early on, he's slipping to the outside of the jab. That's going to help him, at least early, because he stops doing that late. Here they are. You see him, uh, uh, Hooker, which won't, the slides won't show well, doing a lot of faking and a lot of fainting. So he gets a faint here to get a reaction, right? Throws the leg kick, boom. And what do you see from Pearson? Lowering his level. So this is really good from Hooker. You see this all the time. He'd stand off at distance. Look at how far apart they are. Right, flashes the hands, gets a reaction, steps a little bit, sees what um, Pearson does, and then does it again, but this time goes low. 
and Pearson anticipating trying to get in on that range. He's he's sort of you know like a coiled up spring getting ready to leap. All right. We now go to 201. Let's see what happens. They're facing off here. All right. Flashes the hands. Let's see what they do. He's going to lower that level again. And look how he's lowering the level. It's not just straight down. It's to the outside, probably to create a lane for that right hand. And also so this left hand can curve around the glove. If he can go straight through, he will. If he can curve around the glove, even better. Right? Boom. Boom. There it is again. And you can see, look how far down he is. He gets countered a little bit here with a check hook here from Hooker. So just keep that in mind. This is a powerful way to go side to side, but you have to get their weight committed one way or the other. You, or you have to really trick them, or you have to be very, very quick. Um, he didn't quite do that all that well in this particular case. Now, something about that, you know, actually, let me hold up that thought. We'll go to that inside slip here in just a second. Here they are again, 153, right? Now, again, slipping to the outside. This is better for him in my judgment, right? Comes down left to the body. He should go right hand here. Looks like he's got him dead to rights. Just a little bit short. A little bit short. This is where you see in other guys, stance switching comes in and are able to close that space off. And then you see Hooker actually does a little bit of stance switching here. He's going to catch him. Boom. Check left hook. Um, actually, no, I don't think he does stance switching here. He stays in that position. Yeah, what am I saying? Sorry about that. Anyway, stays in position. But nevertheless, because he's so extended here, boom, catches him. Check left hook. Nice job. All right, here we go. 123. You can see, as I mentioned before, Pearson doing the predominant amount of stalking here. All right, well you see him leaning. He's like he's he's sort of bobbing, weaving, right? He's gonna lean to the left, gonna cock that left hand and try to drive it straight through. Didn't even set it up, so all Hooker has to do is sort of lean back and get out of the way. And if he wants, he can counter. Here we are at 106. Now he's turned the tables here a little bit, and you can see him flashing this. Let's see if he flashes the hands. Let's see what happens here. Sticks his hand out. What does Pearson do? Pearson lowers his level, goes right to the body, comes back upstairs, and then I guess does not throw a left. Hard to tell if he is slipping to the inside or the outside here. Looks like he's slipping to the outside or may just be, you know, ducking it's, or bobbing. It's hard to tell. Rolling. All right, here we go. Full 49. Now we're in the second round. This is, again, where Pearson is beginning to pick up the intensity. But he's also getting a little bit more predictable as a consequence. You saw him in that first round, sometimes slipping to the inside, a lot of times slipping to the outside of that jab. One quick note about that. If you go back and watch the Nate Diaz-Conor McGregor second fight, what you'll notice is that Diaz does a lot of inside slips and gets away with it. Um, why? Because he throws a punch right behind it. He slips to the inside and then his left hand came right over the top. That made Diaz pay for jabbing every single time, or every single time he threw it. Right, that's not exactly what Pearson is doing. Pearson's trying to get in, uh, trying to get slipped to the inside, so then he can set up a series of punches that drive Hooker back. But he's having a real big, uh, uh, hard problem closing the distance. So sometimes he's landing, a lot of times he's not. He's looking predictable doing it. That's different than Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor had that distance and that spacing done, so he could just economically move out of the way and his left was in a perfect position to land right behind it that's a deterrent that's that is absolutely impactful in the moment it's a lot of things that Pearson isn't really doing here or, or just can't mechanically All right here we go fires off the jab Pearson leans to the inside inside slip what's he gonna do boom I think he lands a left there All right, but just notice how he is now predictably going to the inside slip let's keep watching here Boom, inside slip, L loads up on that left, and he's still kind of far apart here, so what's going to happen? He's going to sort of land the left here. It lands, but it's not super, super hard, 
but you can see how his weight is committed this way. It's like he's leaping into it, right? This is one thing that Hooker did that I mentioned earlier that I really, really like. He sticks the jab out there, right? Does it again. Another parry, right? Look what happens when he's parrying. This is all happening, you know, in quick succession. This is my favorite. Right behind it, gets it, does it again to get the hand come out, and immediately, bang, throws that behind it. Now, good credit here to Ross Pearson for getting his gloves up, but this was a real nice element from Hooker that I liked. You see this guy, he's trying to tap your hand away every time you're out there measuring it and sticking in his face. So do it to your advantage as he brings that hand out, quickly fire the uh, high kick behind it. Didn't quite land, but it's smart. You can see he's adapting, changing. He's keeping Pearson on his toes. Right? Here we are. Hooker backing up again. Now this is kind of close distance. Let's see what happens here. Boom. It Now this one looks like he's slipping to the outside, but it's more he's just getting under it. Right, I went back and watched the replay a few times. You can even see which way he's about to start stepping here. Right? Steps to the right. Well, well, first of all, he's stepping to the left, but he throws the right. And now he's got him pretty close. This is bad for him. So, boom. You can see he lands that one nice and clean. But, again, he's getting countered a little bit here with that check left hook from Hooker. But it's the same kind of thing over and over again. Let's see what happens here. Right? They're facing off. Right? Leans to the inside off of a fake. Throws the left and misses. And this counter sort of jab check hook misses as well. Here we are. And you can see there's a sort of predictability happening here, right? He, before he was kind of slipping to the outside. Now he's a little bit more predictably coming to the inside every single time. And he's loading up trying to land that left with the right sort of like a distraction. He knows this is a, where everything is centered, right? Parries the jab. Leans to the inside. Boom. Fires the left. Same thing over and over again. Look how he's off of his feet here. You know what I mean? Hooker sees this and just sort of gets out of the way. Here they are again. Hand coming out here. Let's see what he does. Now, Hooker just sort of leans into a cross, which Ross slips to the inside of. Rolls again to his left. All the way it is down. Comes up, fires, and sort of partially lands here. Here they are again, 321. Which way is he going? Left leg, leaning down, leaning to the left. That's what he's doing here, right? And he gets popped for it when he comes back up, but... Boom. Driving in off that left. And you can see he'd have some success if he could get right about here, right? When they're already in boxing range, he can drive to his left and then leap into it and catch it. And that was a big problem for Hooker, especially given the angle here, right? Look where they are. So he's trying to step left because he's so far to the right that he has to create a lane for that left. Hooker did a good job of not merely maintaining space apart but sort of using, um, being too far to his left for this to, for his left to effectively land, in other words. Um, he, was, he, was, he was deep inside on this crossing punch, that lane, which is why he had to sort of step like this in the way that he did. All right, catches him. Here we are, let's see what happens. See, see look how far over he is. Um, he, he's setting this up to get the predominant amount of work done, his own left, all right? See what happens, flashes it, throws the cross, lands pretty nicely, boom, cracks him. This is a little bit earlier in the contest, I believe. And he comes after him here, right behind it, boom, same thing. It's the same offense over and over and over and over again. You're seeing that, look. I'm not making it up, what does he do? Leads with the right, dips down to the left, boom, it comes up, tries to crack him every time, all right? 301, here he is, corner him, let's see what happens. This is a little bit closer range, so you might have some luck here. Slips to the inside, once again, 
Boom, comes up with the left, catches him a little bit as well. Didn't set it up with the right this time. So to, to Ross Pearson's credit, it's getting somewhat predictable, but he is at least trying to vary the finish there. Right? Here he is again, off the jab, coming to the inside, stepping with the left. Right? And this time he just throws a left to the body. All right, we're getting close to the finish here. Let's see, they're facing off. Let's see what happens. Tries to parry the shot. Dan's setting something up here. Let's see what it is. All right, does it again. And this time, rather than going with that high kick, which he's expecting, he goes to the outside low kick on the opposite side. Very, very nice from Dan Hooker. Setting a lot of things up, showing you a look, and then going a different way each time. Really, really great stuff from him. There's a whole, there's a whole series to be done here on a lot of things that Dan Hooker did well. This is merely one aspect of it, but the obviously the big thing is how he controlled the uh, close of the show. So you can see, look at Pearson. I mean, now he's just all the way on the inside, loading up the left, far away, trying to throw it to the body, but he's just, you can see, look how far he's reaching, right? This is, to me, the issue, um, which I'll explain in just a second when we show the finish, right? Here he is. What's he doing again? Leaning off to the inside. What's he going to do? Right? Didn't throw that time. Let's see what happens again. This time they're both going to exchange crosses, but you can see which way Pearson's leaning here. Right? Has to sit back all of a sudden, then tries to get on the inside of a jab, which he does again the same way, and boom, pops him a little bit. But still, not great, right? Let's see what happens again. 2.30. Alright? Flashes the jab. And then lands a nice cross right behind it, sort of not letting Pearson get settled there. Pearson tries to counteract with a follow-up shot, but can't get close. But lands that left because Hooker gets a little bit lazy. All right, here are 227. Let's see what happens. He's going to dip to the inside off the jab. Is this becoming a pattern or what? All right, Let's, now, now we're getting really close. Let's see what happens. All right, he's going to dip to the left. This looks like Hooker throws a jab. It's, it's not exactly. It's sort of just sticking his hand out there. He tries to throw a left short hook on his circling out, but can't quite get it, and they back off. Now here they are hand parrying here, and we're just about, about to close the show. Look how close they are. They're pretty close, right? What's he going to do? You see he does the same thing, and now he's pretty close. Now he's like deep inside, like he's past the elbow range here with his head and his sort of ear, knee, and toe almost in a line. right? So he's, he's deep in on him here. So what's he going to do? He's going to try and throw a left, partially lands. I caught it sort of after the fact. Uh, but it doesn't land great. But he's going to keep following him, right? He's going to dip his level once again. Uh, Hooker backs out. When he sees this, Hooker takes a step back. L look at his feet here and look at his feet here, right? Takes a step back. Pearson rolls kind of like rolls to the right here a little bit. Yeah, you can see that. Yep. Dan sort of sticks a hand out there to sort of deter him. And what happens? Pearson tries to, look, he never he never comes up. So Dan is looking at him this whole time. Dan is looking at him this whole time, watching him keep his level low, waiting for it. He pops up on the left, but this is what's interesting to me. Everyone kept talking about how Pearson um, was ducking the whole time, right? Leaning to that left, and then not only that, lowering his level. But look here. He's, he's up straight, is he not? Now, he gets hit here, but it's not like he had super lowered his level. So why did this happen? A couple of reasons in my judgment, from here to here, right? Look, he's he's not super crumpled up. He's not, look, 
He's way lower here. Look at that. Way, way lower. But that's not what he's... He's not aiming to hit him low. I mean, if he can, that'd be great, right? It would make it even harder. What he's looking to do is he's waiting to see when he springs. And not only is he waiting to see when he springs, what's behind Dan right here? Dan saw in the bottom of the corner of his eye, when he got below these two black lines, you need to get out of here. What he'd been doing is he'd been a, doing a good job of circling here, where whenever Ross tried to uh, advance on him, he had Cage behind him to go backwards or go backwards at an angle just to get out of the way. But here he's not like exactly up against the fence, but this is the warning track. So what he's doing is he's realizing, okay, number one, he's close to me. Just no matter where we are, relatively speaking, he's close to me. Number two, I'm getting backed up against the cage. Number three, he's loaded like a spring. I'm going to wait for him to move in, and rather than try and circle out of the way and get trapped up against the fence where I don't want to be, I'm going to just meet him, and I'm going to use our height differential. And there may be some leaning on that left side, because remember, he throws it with the rear leg, not the left so whenever there was that weight being distributed to the left, it wasn't quite upright. But you can see my point here is he springs up. He's not like standing here and throwing a hook. I mean, it looks that way, but you have to understand he has sprung to his feet to land. Dan sees that, blocks it, and then throws a knee right away using height differential and using the fact that now Pearson, because he has sprung into position, he can't retract, he can't really move. He has to wait till his own weight recenters before he can move and get out of the way, and he lands just as it does, boom. That's really what this is about. It's about catching a guy who kept going to one side over and over and over and over again and did so by jumping out of position, chasing a guy backwards, pushing him into a warning territory, and then taking advantage, in the case of Hooker, taking advantage of a height differential, a defensive tell, and overcommitment to a position to land something. This is what I love from Dan Hooker. Back up, back up, back up. But finally, when it was time to strike, bang, threw it. Right? Waited till the guy. I love this. Waited till the guy. Look at this. Look how tightly wound he is. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Look, you can see him waiting for it. Waiting for it. Waiting for it. Waiting for it. And you can already tell once he threw that left hook and he sprung up, drove it up. Bang. High and hard. And he caught him. He caught him dead to rights. Pretty amazing job. The key there for me is when Ross Pearson was slipping to the outside of the jab, he wasn't having as much offensive luck, and I think that maybe was frustrating him. I think some of the distance management by Dan Hooker was giving him problems, right? The outside low kick, the, the rear leg teeps. He was obviously doing a good job of sticking the jab in his face. And then the predictability of rolling to the inside by Ross Pearson, either throwing a left up the middle, a left around the hook, uh, around the gloves, or a right straight, and then a left hook over the top, changing levels like that over and over and over and over again. It just caused him a big problem. So by the time he actually pushed him up against the fence here, or let's say behind the warning track, um, and, and from a distance began to uncoil, Dan Hooker knew where he was going to be. He knew where Ross Pearson was going to be when it was time to throw that knee, did it on instinct, and absolutely crushed him with it. Yes, there was some leaning, but it was more about where, where is he going to be once he tries to uncork, where can I be, what can I do with it? I think they knew that that might have been a big part of it, that there was going to be a height differential, and so he just took, he just took him to school. Incredible job by Dan Hooker. And last but not least, we take a look at the fights that are coming up this weekend. Now, I'm sure there are many across the world in boxing and MMA, but the big one, and I use that one 
that word big quite loosely, uh, is UFC Fight Night 111, right? This is going to be UFC Fight Night Home versus Kohea, or UFC Fight Night, or UFC Singapore, whatever you want to call it. it takes place at the Singapore Indoor Stadium in Kalang, or Kalan, Singapore, June 17th. Uh, in the main event, Holly Holm, off a three-fight losing streak, takes on Betch Kohea in a women's bantamweight contest. Andre Arlovsky is back in action against Marcin Tabura. Dong Hyung Kim versus Colby Covington. That should be a fun one. And then Tarek Safadin taking on the debuting welterweight, Rafael Dos Anjos. On your prelim card, Tekinari Gumi versus John Tuck. Cyril Asker versus Walt Harris. Alex Casares taking on Rolando Gabriel Dai. Justin Scoggins is back against Olka Sasaki. Don't be surprised if that's a very competitive contest. Li Jiang Lang taking on Frank Camacho. Frank the Crank. Um, Quan Ho Kwok taking on Russell Doan. Naoki Inoue taking on Carlos John de Tomas. And uh, Ji Yong Kim taking on Lucy Putalova. So not that great of a prelim card, but something to like there on that main card, I suppose. All right. If you have any questions, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. You see below, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, same name as well. Facebook.com slash LukeThomasNews, and then um, Instagram.com slash LukeThomasNews. So give me, a, uh, give me some likes and some follows. That would be great. Really appreciate it. Please subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for watching, guys. Until next time, enjoy the fights.